As I said earlier, we're going to be in Matthew 9. As a starting note, if you guys are note takers, this is in the app. It's kind of a main idea today is seeing people healed. We get to participate in, in Jesus healing people of addictions, relationships, guilt and shame, and physical health. Being a part of transforming someone's life allows us to share Jesus through the process. So we've been in a series talking about sharing Jesus with others. We've talked about sharing our story with other people, and I shared my story going through addiction and prison and gangs and all the things that I had been through, and how just sitting down and sharing my story is powerful to share with others, how Jesus 20 years ago changed my life, how all the things that he brought me through, and in fact, if I were to share that story today, I would say how Jesus healed me of a 17-year drug addiction, how Jesus changed my life. Right? And that's what we've been doing. We're talking about the power of sharing the gospel with others, sharing your story with others, serving other people, loving broken people, and today seeing people healed. Now, I, I phrase it that way. It's kind of an odd phrasing, but here's what I want to say. We don't heal people, right? Jesus heals people, right? It's not, it, it's not us. And so we get to see them healed. We get to see their lives transformed. We get to see what God can do, and we get to participate in it. And as we get to see people, as we get to see Jesus heal people, as he walks them through, whatever it might be, a struggle with depression, right? There's some stories going on right now in, in Facebook and in some circles that we know of a pastor who committed suicide, right? That doesn't just happen overnight. And that's a struggle that someone has walked through. I lost my friend, my best friend, six years ago to suicide a solid Christian leader in a church I was pastoring at the time, or I, a church I had pastored. When we walk with people through things like deep depression, addictions, struggles in their marriage, uh, struggles in their faith, when we walk with them through things, it gives us opportunity to share Jesus with them. And we get to participate in and see Jesus heal people. And when Jesus transforms someone's life like he did mine, it, it causes me, it causes us to love Jesus and to walk closely with Jesus and to want to share him with others. And so that's kind of where we land today. We're going to talk about how we can participate in seeing other people healed by Jesus. So Matt, it feels like it's really loud and echoey. Is there anything I can do different? Is it not bad? Good. All right. Matthew 9. So back up one chapter and we will get started. It's really hard to hear the difference up here. Thank you. Do I sound tall and thin? <laughs> yep. All right. Thanks. A little tanner, stronger, younger. All right. Good. Matthew 9, verse 1. And he, meaning Jesus, got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. So here's where we are. We're picking up in the middle of a book, right? Normally we teach through books of the Bible. We're working through a passage today because we want to work through passages of the Bible, but normally we would have already taught the passages prior to this. And so here we're picking up in the middle of a story about a third of the way into the book, and here's where we are. Jesus is in his three-year season of full-time ministry. Now when I say that, the, the early life of Jesus, very little is recorded about it. It's not the focus of, the early, his early life is not the focus, right? But then he, when he turns and pivots and goes into a three-year, very focused ministry, that's when the story starts to do a deep dive into Jesus' life. As he begins to teach and proclaim the kingdom of God, as he goes from town to town as kind of an itinerant preacher, if you would, and then the other main thing he does is heal people. 
He performs miracles, but very few miracles are not healings, right? He walks on water, but the disciples are the only ones to see that. He feeds two large crowds for sure, and he turns water into wine. But almost everything else he does is a healing. All the rest of the miracles are healings, and there's a ton of them. There are so many that we're going to read through so many today just in one chapter that you're going to see this is a repeated theme. So if we were to sum up the ministry life of Jesus, he's a preacher and a healer, right? That he would teach us about the kingdom of God and heal people is the core thrust of his ministry. And so as we're, in the, as we're kind of uh, leaning into this passage, starting in the middle of this, we just need to know he's in that season. So he's going from town to town. He's talking about the kingdom of God. All that he does, he points upward to his father in heaven. He is healing people and, and crowds are gathering around him. Verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. In other words, a man who can't walk or move, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want you to see the ties between Jesus healing people and Jesus' emphasis of eternity. Or let me say that another way, Jesus healing people of physical things while he teaches them about spiritual and eternal things. So a man, a paralytic, probably a quadriplegic might be the way we, we might say that today, is brought to Jesus. He's carried in by his friends. And he's brought to Jesus for what reason? To be healed. That was an easy, that was a softball. You guys can all catch that one, right? To be healed by Jesus, right? That's what he's there for. Then what does Jesus do? Does he heal him? No. It's the first thing he says. Your sins are forgiven. Not exactly why his friends carried him in, right? Not, not probably not what he was looking for. Clearly what Jesus is about. So if you're a note taker, let me, let me put it down this way. Jesus' healings were almost always opportunities to teach about the kingdom of God, illustrating what engaging others should look like when we do it. Now, I don't recommend leading with, hey, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of a Jesus thing, okay? It's kind of something we should just leave to him. But we get to talk about forgiveness. We get to talk about Jesus. We get to talk about salvation. And Jesus leads with that, right? He leads with something eternal when the people are there for something physical or temporal. Something that won't last through eternity, but something very important to them that day. Verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So there's scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. There's all these different versions of religious leaders. The scribes are the academics. They are the Old Testament scholars, if you will. They wouldn't have said that because all they had was the Old Testament. They would have just said Bible scholars, right? And so that's who they are. Their first response when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, this man is blaspheming, right? Here's what they're saying. This man is claiming to be God. Like no one but God gets to say that. No one but God gets to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Like we get to lead people to a place where God promises their forgiveness. We get to walk them through how Jesus died for their sins, how Jesus rose from the grave to give them a new life so we can speak authoritatively, but it's Jesus that must forgive them. Jesus leads with that, your sins are forgiven. So the scribes, the scholars, the smart guys, their minds are just blowing up. Okay, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. He just claimed to be God. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about, don't ever let it be said that Jesus never claimed to be God. 
He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the promise of the Old Testament, the Messiah. He claimed these things. And when he does so, we know exactly what he's saying by the response of the religious in the room, if you will. The elite, the smartest guys, the scribes, the scholars of the Old Testament, their response is, he's claiming to be God. Like, I see what he's doing, and they think he's wrong. And so they're saying he's being blasphemous because he's taking divine attributes and, and applying them to himself. Verse 4 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? So here's what he's saying. Listen, what's easier? Not just, let's just make this really human and really right now. So if someone is sitting here paralyzed or in a wheelchair and can't walk, What's easier to say to them, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Well, both of them are beyond my ability. I might be able to say one, but we're going to know if I'm right with the other one, right? He's saying, so what's easier to say? So he's challenging and saying, listen, first off, only God can forgive sins. So I've got to be saying something here, right? But what's easier, to say that or to say rise and walk? Well, clearly, we, we would all answer it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because we can't see the immediate result, right? But if I say rise and walk, and if Rob doesn't stand up, please don't, because you're really big, and you'll like block the whole back of the room. But <laughs> if I say that, and he doesn't get up and walk, we have issues, right? All of a sudden, my credibility just tanked. That's his point. Authority. Credibility. To make the claim that he is God, now how does he back that up? So here's what he does. Verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man, also a title from the Old Testament about God, about the Messiah, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Moment of truth time, right? Now, I've said your sins are forgiven, which seems kind of easy. Now, of course, it's not something I can do, but it seems easy to say. There's no proof. Is he forgiven? Is he not forgiven? But here's what he says. Now he says, okay, stand up. Like, I know your buddies carried you in here, and I know you've probably never stood before. Now, I want you to stand up and walk. I want to read that again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. So here's why I'm going to do this. Jesus is giving us his reasons so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he, the paralytic, rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Here's what I want you to see. If you're a note taker, again, eternal focus. Though Jesus often healed people and desired to do so, it gave him a platform to point to God or to point to the kingdom of God. Jesus kept an eternal focus even in meeting temporal needs. Here's what Jesus says. So that you may know, skeptics, smart guys, scribes, scholars, religious types, so that you may know that I am who I say I am. That sounds really Popeye-esque. So that you may know that I'm the son of man. And he tells the paralytic to get up and walk. And he does. In fact, the paralytic, he picks up his own bed and carries his bed out. See, Jesus did this with a purpose. He didn't just heal people to heal people. Now, I believe deeply that he wanted that man to walk. 
right? I believe that he loves the people that he heals and, and that, that he desires the best for people. But I will tell you this, he didn't just walk by and kind of, I'll leave names out of this, but just like wave a white jacket at people and, and let them be healed. That's it. So, uh, and indiscriminately heal people that without them ever knowing what's going on, he did so that he could proclaim himself the Christ, right? That he could proclaim the kingdom of God, that you would know the truth about God. And so he leans into this first healing in this chapter and says, this is so that you know I'm the one who could forgive sins. Get up. And he does. And he carries his bed home. He was carried in by his friends. He walks out carrying his bed on his way out. Jesus heals this man so that others may know, or that all may know, who Jesus is. Verse 9, it says, And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So this is Matthew, a tax collector. He is the author of this gospel. Now, tax collectors, in this setting, if you're unfamiliar, are despised people. And obviously, we go straight to the IRS. Way worse than that, right? We were here yesterday. One of our elders is, a, is an attorney, and we were, he is very self-deprecating. And he was making the joke that he hadn't done an honest day's work since law school, right? So we were just joking around about attorneys, right? That's a common thing, right? This is nothing like that. This is a Jewish man taking money, extorting money from Jewish people to give to Roman authorities, the people that were enslaving them, really, Right? So this is one of your own, taking your money and skimming a bunch of money off the top. So taking way more than the government tells them to take, skimming their income off the top, and then paying Rome. So this is way worse. So these are despised people in culture. And Jesus, walking by, seeing this tax collector, calls him and says, hey, come with me. Verse 10, it says, and as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, at his house, the tax collector's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the, another religious elite group, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So tax collectors are like a unique brand of sinners, right? And every culture's got them. We could name the ones in our culture that seem to get singled out. I'm not saying that's right, just saying it's true. And so here's what happens. A bunch of tax collectors now come over to Matthew's house where Jesus is hanging out. And so do the Pharisees. And the, the Pharisees are kind of the uber-right, ultra-religious, conservative type over here that won't even associate with people unlike themselves. And so they see this. They hear about this. They see Jesus, who is known to be a rabbi. Remember, he's an itinerant preacher and healer and that kind of guy. And so he's seen by other Jewish religious leaders as a Jewish leader. They just don't like him. And they don't understand him clearly. And they say, listen, why does he hang out with tax collectors, number one, but also sinful people? Right? They asked the same question not too long ago when he was hanging out with a Samaritan woman or a woman caught in adultery. Like, you see these stories and the religious, they just have no concept of why Jesus would be engaging these obviously sinful people. It's because they have no understanding of their own sin. Right? They don't see themselves as sinful and broken and flawed. They see themselves as right and everybody else is wrong. And so as Jesus engages these people, of all these different kinds of people, that's their question. 
Like, I don't get why he hangs out with them. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's what happens. So Jesus ties the spiritual needs of people back to the physical needs of people. He says, listen, I didn't come to call, you know, a, a doctor doesn't go looking for healthy people, although that would probably be a really good way to make money, right? They, they go and look for the sick, right? That they go and look for people that are in need of health. That's what a doctor does, because you don't make any money, really, off the healthy and you don't get to do any work with the healthy so much. You have to work with the sick. That's the idea. So Jesus says this. He says, you know, I know you understand that. I'll take an earthly thing that you understand, a physical thing that you already understand. And let me teach you about a spiritual thing that you don't get yet. I came to call not the righteous, not the healthy, but sinners. I came to take deeply broken, hurting, suffering people and teach them about the kingdom of God and heal their lives in the midst of this. I didn't come to call the people that don't need me. Not that the religious don't need him, but that's how they act. He says, I came to meet people in their brokenness, in their need. So what should that teach us to do? The same, right? That we should seek people that are broken that are in need, that are addicted, that are struggling, that are hurting, that need healing, that we should engage those kinds of people, which really at some levels, all of us, right? And all of us, clearly before Jesus, all of us had somewhere where, where Jesus intervened in our lives. So we should go be a part of that. Remembering that there's eternity in hand, yes, but there's the truth about God, that that, that would be important, and that we could actually reach people in the hardest part of their lives. Verse 14 says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is kind of a, why do we obey the rules, but you don't? It's kind of like that, right? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and it's worse and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So two metaphors, two parables, if you will, Jesus gives. He says, you don't patch something that's already shrunk and already done that with a new piece of cloth. You don't sew that on and then wash it and it shrinks. It tears away and makes the hole bigger. Or you don't take an old wineskin that's already expanded and dried and, and it won't give anymore and put new wine in it that's going to bubble up and expand and break it. And what he's speaking to is when they ask about fast, or when they ask about fasting, he says, listen, fasting is when you deny yourself something in order to press into God, to get closer to God. And he said, but they don't have to do that. I'm standing right here. Like, there'll be plenty of time for that when I ascend back to heaven when I'm done. But right now is a time of celebration. And what he's saying is, listen, the old way of doing things doesn't work. That we need to find a new way of doing things that won't just burst when the joy of faith enters in. And what he's saying is we need to engage people. What was in the midst of this conversation about why he came and why he hit, would hang out about sin, with sinful people and, and why that, you know, that he would heal people and tell them about himself and just why he would do all that is he's saying we need a new model 
And that model is for people to engage people, right? That we would engage in people's lives. So the point of these two parables is this. Jesus' parables about unshrunk cloth and new wine and old wineskins point to a new way, to new ways of doing things. Jesus engaged sinful and broken people in ways the religious did not. And this is something we're all called to do as well. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus is kind of upping his game here. He's going from sick people to, now it's, hey, my daughter's already died. So imagine a daughter has died. We don't know how long this man traveled, but he traveled some amount of time to find Jesus. He gets to Jesus. He tells Jesus, hey, listen, my daughter's already died. And now they got to walk back again. Can't just call Uber and head on over, right? Like this is a process. So when they arrive, what we're going to see is they're going to arrive in the midst of mourning, basically in the funeral process. So it says, well, he was saying, excuse me, in verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So in the midst of this, now he's going to go off and he's going to go to this man's home, a woman who has been bleeding. Another gospel tells us that she's been bleeding for many years without being able to stop. And she comes up and she reaches out and she touches Jesus' robe. She touches a garment that he's wearing. Verse 21, it says, For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Let me ask you, is it her actions that she did that made her well? No, it's her faith, right? It doesn't matter how we arrive there. We we need to get out of the idea that there's a formula to getting well, that that you do this or you say this prayer, you do it this way, you walk through these steps, you do this, and all of a sudden you arrive at well. Like, we can't separate healing and Jesus in this sense, right? That we can't separate those. Yes, you can go to a doctor, and you can get prescribed something, and you can get better, and it can be, you can all be atheists, and yes, that can happen. But what we're talking about is in a miraculous, life-changing miracle, you can't separate how you did it from who did it, from Jesus who heals. And so he says, your faith has made you well. Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, so not back to the ruler whose daughter has died. It says, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. So what I want you to hear is the funeral's underway. So she's not sick. She's not dying. She's dead. And she's been dead. And they're moving on. They're starting to mourn her and prepare her for burial and, and move in that direction. Verse 24, he, Jesus, said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So... Let's just be honest. We'd laugh too, right? Okay. She's dead. Like we're embalming her. We've wrapped her to go in a grave, to go in a tomb. We're mourning. The band is playing, right? The fat lady is warming up on the wings. She's going to sing. Like this is it, right? Like this is, this is, it's over with now, right? I'm sorry, under tall lady, whatever, right? So, you know, it's over. She's dead. And he says, go away, she's just sleeping. And they're like, this dude's crazy. Like, there's no, 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 dude. You understand, Jesus, she's dead. Been dead. It's not going to change. 
Verse 25, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. He raises this girl from the dead. Like, not dying, not sick, but been dead. Now you've just got to ask, okay, so how does that relate to me? What we've got to say is, is there anything in my life then that is so big Jesus can't fix it? Is there anything beyond the scope of Jesus being able to put up whatever I've messed up, put it back in order? Like Jesus just raised the girl from the dead who's been dead for days, right? We know that by the place in the service that they're at. That ought to give us hope that there's nothing in our lives that is past Jesus being able to fix it, to heal it, to redeem it, to use it. Verse 26, and the report of this went through all that district. The word spreads. Jesus' fame spreads with each healing he performs. When people's lives are transformed and healed today by the name, the name of Jesus spreads when their story is shared. Right? So we've been in this series about sharing, your fa- about, about sharing Jesus with other people. And we began with sharing your story. We showed that video uh, of Rob and his story and told a little bit about mine. We talked about how just sharing your story is a powerful tool to sharing Jesus with others. So as these people are being healed, the word is spreading. The story about what Jesus is doing is spreading. Not some theological or academic approach to defining who Jesus is or that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament or that this is the promise made in the garden by God way back in Genesis 3. It's like this guy just rose this girl from the, he just raised this girl from the dead. This Jesus that's been proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying he is the Messiah. This guy who's been forgiving sins, he raised this little girl who'd been dead for days. He, he told her stand up and she stood up like it was crazy when he told the paralytic to stand up. But then he told a girl who's dead, can't even hear him to stand up and she stood up. That's the story that's spreading. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Right? He leans into faith. Do you believe I can do this for you? But that's the question. If you're here today, whether you're a follower of Jesus and been following Jesus since, you know, for decades upon decades upon decades, Or if you're sitting here and you're just wondering who Jesus is, really, here's the question. Do you believe in Jesus? I mean, it's really that simple. Do you believe that he can do the things he says he can do? Do you believe that he can fix whatever's broken in your life? Do you you believe that he can forgive your sin, that he loves you, he wants to forgive your sin? Do Do you believe that he wants to restore what's broken in your life? If you believe that, then Jesus gets to move on, right? But the crux of the question is this, do you believe? Can we open that? Lucky, can we open that, those doors? That's not really a question like can we, it's will you please open those, that's, that's a lot better, right? Everybody's fanning themselves. I'm melting and the doors are shut. I figure that's probably smart. Clearly, Monday morning's mental note, get the HVAC figured out, right? Okay. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man 
I skipped it. Verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, a blind man came to, came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame all throughout that district. You're welcome, those of you guys that sit back there. He even tells them not to tell people, and they can't keep that story inside, right? They, their life has been forever altered. They were blind, now they get to see, right? That's why that's so written about in worship songs. Like, I once was blind, but now I see. Like, that's a story that lives on. That's a story that gets told. That's a story you want to share with others. When, you, when people have been blind from birth, and they're 25 years old, and all of a sudden Jesus heals them, and they see people that have known them since they were younger, they're like, what happened? You're going to tell them about Jesus, right? I mean, that's, that's how, that's why I'm here. Because Jesus, that radically changed my life. And it is no more or less miraculous that Jesus healed me of an addiction and the life that I lived. I was probably more addicted to the lifestyle than just the drugs, but that God could change that. That is just as great as if I had been unable to walk and Jesus let me walk. In fact, I'd rather be in a wheelchair and not be who I was than be who I was and walk. So that story has to be told, right? That's the story that needs to live on. So Jesus heals them and his fame continues to spread. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was there anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So, right, there, there are people that are not going to believe, right? Right, like we say, haters going to hate, right? Like, I, right, they're, they're going to be people that don't want any part of this. That I don't care if they see it or not, they're going to find a way to make it bad. Oh, he heals people because he's demon-possessed himself. Really? That, that's what you've got, right? Verse 35, so Jesus went throughout the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Do you see the, the hierarchy of what was valuable to Jesus? He was teaching about the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he was healing and helping people. But remember, in the end, Jesus is... is He's proclaiming a message about God, a message about himself. And these healings are just a way of, of really loving people and showing them how much he loves them and giving authority to who he is. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard that verse before. Hey, Amen. The harvest is plenty, but laborers are few. Pray that God would send out more laborers, right? How many times have we heard that? Lots, right? And what are we always told that that's about? Evangelism, right? That you would go out and share your faith. And I'm not saying it's not that, but if you were to read that, like we read this, we read the whole chapter. What would you say is the context of that? Healing people teaching people, sharing Jesus with people, whatever we needed. It just said he went about from town to town, proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing people, sharing himself with them, right? He was going out there and he was doing this. 
I, I, the reason I say it that way is it's not just that simple of going, walking around and telling people about Jesus. Don't eliminate that part, right? Romans says, how are they ever going to know if someone doesn't tell them, right? And blessed is the one who gets to tell them. But here's what I would say. This is a call to engage in broken people's lives. We meet people where they are, that we meet people in their pain, in their need, in their brokenness. We meet them there and we use that in order to share Jesus with them. So many people are willing to walk around and maybe hand someone a track or tell something to someone audibly to do something, but not be willing to walk with them in their life. And Jesus was exactly the opposite. Jesus would walk with them. He would get into the the dirt and the mud of their life. He would walk with them in their diseases. He would walk with them even when they had lost a loved one. He even raised the dead of a loved one, showing us he has the power to do whatever it is that we ask of him, but calling us to engage in people's life at a level that is hard and uncomfortable and will be costly. Walking with people that are broken, addicted, sick, whatever it might be, is hard work. If you've ever done it, you know. If you've lost a loved one or or walked with a loved one through some of these things, you know how hard it is. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Because when lives are changed, when people are forever healed, the door for Jesus just swings wide open. Two closing thoughts for you. You have the first one, Pedro? Temporal benefit versus eternal outcome. The healing of others is for real benefit now. I don't want to diminish that. It's real now, right? But the focus is always the eternal outcome of people meeting Jesus. If an alcoholic gets sober, it's great. But if they don't meet Jesus in the process, we've missed the mark, right? You can feed people, but if they don't get Jesus, you've just sent full people into the rest of their life without Jesus, Right? So if you're in a 12-step recovery program, if you're, you know, higher powers the doorknob, we're kind of missing the point. Right? That Jesus would be the point. That Jesus is the one who transforms life. And I'm glad that people get sober apart from Jesus. I'm glad. Because at least they're sober. But if we are just leading people to health or to healing or to redemption and we're missing Jesus, we're missing the point. Last note. Nothing points to Jesus more than healing in someone's life. Participating in this is hard work, but when lives are transformed, there's nothing greater. The most powerful thing to the people that I knew before Jesus, whether that be people that are in gangs, people that were addicted, family members who I I was estranged from all of my family, my friends, the most powerful thing that has witnessed Jesus to them and those that have come to faith, I tell you with bar none, it's because of this one thing. Because I'm different. Because I am fundamentally not the person I was before. My little brother would call me from Ohio and he would lead off every conversation with like, hey, so are you still doing that Jesus thing? Yep. And we'd go on and we'd talk. For years, that was the leading question. And then one day, December 12, 13, 14 years ago, he calls me, he says, hey, you still doing that Jesus thing? I said, yeah. He goes, I need that. 2,000 miles away, we prayed over a phone for him, and now he's a believer. And his kids have been raised in the church. And I will tell you, the only thing I ever did was share how my life is different. Share how Jesus transformed me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we could gather. I'm, uh, 
I'm incredibly grateful that we are here in this building. Hot as it may be, this is ours. Like Pastor Joey said, this is home. We know the HVAC works. We just don't know how to do it, obviously. So God, help us be smarter or help us get it fixed. But really, we're so grateful. It could have been a hundred and something out. It's not. And even if it was, Jesus, as long as we can proclaim you, as we can open up your word, we can sing songs of worship, it's a good day. And when we get to tell of people's lives being forever transformed, Jesus, it goes from a good day to a great day. And so thank you that you've changed me, that I am not the man I used to be, and that I've been able to be that witness to others. Thank you that those who will never know my past, Lord, thank you that I can just share my story. I thank you for all these changed lives in here. I know so many of them. I know how you've transformed them. I pray that we would now all go take that and that we would give it away as freely as you gave it to us. Let us go be a part of the process of you healing other people. Hard as it may be, costly, time-consuming as it may be, let us engage. You've called us all to join you in that mission. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.